Hi everyone, my name is Essen and this is the Brown History Podcast. Today is episode 3 and we're going to be talking to Crescendo Ray. Crescendo Ray is a legit food scholar. He is part of the NYU faculty. I think he was a dean or is a dean or an acting dean, something like that. But he's up there. Um, how did I discover him? Every time I would read about food in the New York Times or Washington Post, written by some some American, they always use him as kind of like that guy to ask questions like, oh, oh, and today we have Crescendo Ray who's going to give us his input. I kind of found his name in a lot of places and I went to go, you know, digging with it. And I found that he wrote many books. He has like a lot of books out and his most recent book, The Ethnic Restauranter. And I bought it and I read it and there's so much information there. It's, it's mind blowing. I cannot look at restaurants the same way anymore. A lot of people write about food, the food industry. But when they do write about it, they write about it from the perspective of the customer. So he wrote a book from the perspective of the immigrants who start restaurants, hence ethnic food. And he explores not just like their life stories, but really the business part of it, the economical aspect of it, the politics of it, everything. And he talks about that. For example, why is Chinese food considered ethnic food, but you never see anyone referring French cuisine as ethnic food? Things like that. Why do we pay more money for Nordic food, but not for Pakistani food? These are the things we're going to talk about. So I hope you enjoy it. And here we go. You, you, this is good. Sound is good for you. I think, I think so. Yeah, this is the, you're my first guest. So perfect. All my mistakes are going to come from us. <laughs> That's good. Have you watched uh, Taste the Nation? I have watched uh, two episodes of it. Yeah. What did you think? I'm still... Uh, uh, I'm going to still not make a conclusion. make up my mind. I want to see the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I like I like aspects of it. In fact, I was more impressed by it that there's less of the celebrityness, you know, um, from her, from her, you know. Uh, and I also I, there's something about her accent that I used to kind of that liquid molasses. Uh, Padma Lakshmi thing was I thought was used to get in the way of uh, uh, really having a conversation and she has toned that down so I like that and I like that it is centered around immigration and I saw the episode on Mexicans in the US and then um, Germans which in fact both of them are very good instances and people forget how Germans were used to be considered foreign and used to be the most important second language taught in the US, like Spanish is today, and how Germans were not considered white people. They were not secu- securely white. So it raises some kind of fun and interesting questions. So I like those aspects of it. But then on the other side, there's also this um, easy sentimentalism. About... It has to be, though. <laughs> I mean, this is I mean, America. American TV. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. So I don't know how much one blames her for that. Um, and some of the voiceover where she generalizes then is really lame. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, ah, the role of food is the, the food that travels. It unite us, unites us. I, I mean, that's like painful to suffer that. I wish she got better lines on those when she does those voiceover and overarching themes. I mean, I also, I, I'm much more sympathetic to it because it's tougher for beautiful woman to do this. And of color. 
of color you know to do this not be yeah. not be criticized for it yeah. I, so i don't want to compare her to say anthony bourdain right? right he was a kind of a swaggering masculine white guy but very it took him smart. a while for it took him, him a get, while to, to get, get him his that voice right yeah like when he goes to vietnam for instance and where uh, or wherever he go, like when he goes to Sicily and he's pissed with this uh, fakery when people are throwing these octopus into the water and he's mm-hmm. supposed to dive and get it and he comes out furious that was beautiful it took him that self-confidence took him time and I'm, I'm, I'm so I'm very sympathetic to that and I don't want to compare it to another swaggering masculine figure who who took a long time but 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 and here's the thing he reached into some complex issues of politics of how food is not just sweet and easy and sentimental gets us all together. Uh It is about division. It is about racism. It is about, and so I want her to get there. So that's why I'm kind of um, restraining myself from making too much of an immediate judgment. Uh, I hope she grows in it. It is a good voice to have. uh, A good ally good ally and and some something about food that should trouble us and yet provide some respite from all the wars around in the world around it the chaos that's around yeah you know in in the u.s trump in india modi i mean this is like a nightmare uh, at the moment yeah at the moment and people are and or erdogan in turkey it's like this these figures authoritarian uh, populist figures, majoritarian figures, who are basically trying to shift their societies uh, towards kind of this majoritarian populism that is dangerous and destructive, and using using food and using culture uh, and using disgust and danger, yeah. and that's the world in which Padma Lakshmi is entering. You grew up in that kind of environment in India. I mean, you were yes. you grew up in India in the seventies. Absolutely, that was a that was a tough time, and I'm probably sure that you you touched with the legacy of partition too twice. Yes. yes. You know, 70s in India must have been like really tough. I mean, you had Indira Gandhi. How how did that the violence? You, huh? Absolutely. I think Indira Gandhi's violence I missed uh, directly because I was too young. You know, okay. but its consequences on the society was quite all around me. N- uh, 1984. And, Exactly. 1984 was for me. I was there. I was there in Delhi. I was, that's the first time that I think totally destroyed my faith in any religion for me was devastating. So what I saw was my people, Hindus, attacking Sikhs unrelentingly and physically kind of the mayhem, uh, thousands of Sikhs killed in Delhi, Delhi paralyzed for days uh, uh, until the military moves in and stops the violence. And we did a lot of work in the various neighborhoods where Sikh communities, especially Sikh men, this was a kind of a challenge of kind of a Hindu masculinity against Sikh men who were targeted more than anyone else and, and destroyed, communities destroyed. I have, and that smell of Sikhs burnt alive in, in my neighborhood in Lajpat Nagar, Gurdwara uh, set alight and, uh, and you can smell burnt flesh uh, coming out. It was the most, I walked for days 
in Delhi trying to find my friends so we could try to do something about it. And we did eventually. We set up a camp. Uh, we protected Sikh uh, taxi drivers. How old uh, are you? This is what? This is 84. Uh, so I'm just uh, 20 years old, you know? And so, uh, and so with my friends, we did and, and failed to do, of course, uh, a million other things that we could have. And that was... And that was a recoil back. So you're right. That was devastating and transformative and cured me all of my easy sentimentalism about nationalism, about religion. And uh, it developed a deep-seated skepticism about belonging, in fact, in a funny way. Mm-hmm. You know, This was a sign of how bad it can get when you belong. It has always created this skepticism in me saying, hold on, let, let's not rush into this thing of, about belonging in this project because I know the violence that belonging can bring. And that also evoked anti-Muslim riots of my uh, youth, much younger than I remember these riots in this eastern city of Katak. It's on the Mahanadi. It's in the state of Odisha. And in fact, we are culturally Odias. My mother, my, one of my mother tongue is Odia. My uh, mother's mm-hmm. language is Odia. My father's language is Bengali. Bengali. But we mostly grew up in Odisha. And the, and, the, and the emergence of anti-Muslim programs, in a sense, uh, Muslim businesses. I remember distinctly, this is probably sometime in the 70s, maybe 1974, we lived uh, on a canal in Katak, and across the canal, a mob was attacking this hotel that was a property, presumably Muslim hotel owner, the violence of it, the anxiety around it. And, and I would say it evoked back to me uh, Bengali Odia riots in Odessa. What is the conflict between them? Is it the exactly. language? Can you think about that? I mean, like, they're both Hindus. <laughs> exactly. People can invent. That's my thing. My one lesson in life. People will invent difference, to acute cultural difference, so that they can belong in one thing. In this case, was the conflict was between Odias and Bengalis. And remember, linguistically, this is the linguistic difference. And I remember distinctly how rumors spread. And I was about 10 years old rumors spread through the streets about how Odia women had been attacked on a train called the Puri Express, which used to travel and still does from Kolkata, Calcutta to Puri, which is a city of pilgrimage. So there was always a tourist pilgrimage travel. It was a few hours travel of Bengali men, women, families uh, traveling to Puri and then returning. And this this rumor spread amongst Odia men. Uh, and I would consider myself an Odia uh, boy at that point of time, 10 years old. And uh, this information or misinformation rumor spread through the community. And... Uh, and we lived, in a, uh, we lived in a neighborhood which was a bit like a Bengali ghetto. I'm look, thinking back now, which had a few East Bengali refugees, which is Bangladeshi refugees. So it's, it was known in the community as where there was a Bengali population. And I happened to be part of a family in which my father is Bengali, my mother is Odia. And uh, there was this mob outside our building try to break in in the night. 
and my father is away. He's a salesman. Uh, he's uh, on a tour. Uh, my mother, who is Odia, with the neighbors, trying to protect us. Me, a ten-year-old kid, and my f- uh, brother, a five-year-old. Your and mother the, should be okay because she's she's Odia. Odia. But the problem, of course, is this: is sometimes for these what we call communal used to call communal rights, uh, that itself is a provocation. You know, that in some ways, the fact that my mother is married to a Bengali man is a sign of a betrayal of the community, yeah. right? And because remember, these are also action by men, young men, who are also about sexual power in the community and masculinity. That's, that's really scary. You know? You know, it's, I mean, terrifying. And I remember the little girl next door, she was stabbed and thrown off the second floor. One of the rest, he was this guy who used to wrestle, was killed. And so uh, next day we learned, and thankfully the mob could not break the doors. Is that why you left? Uh, no, no, no. I mean, this is kind of a regular part. I'll, 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 I'll say one part of it. My aunt, who is my mother's sister, who is also Oria, travels next day here's this rumor this is remember this is before cell phones uh, so no one knows what's going on we didn't have a landline telephone line so my uh, aunt who is my mother's younger sister learns about this riot next day reaches out with a gun on her lap saying i'm going to go get my get these kids get my sister uh, so next day, uh, and she, <laughs> she's Oria. Her husband is Oria. Her husband is too afraid to come with her. That's so funny. she takes, she takes the this jeep and with a gun on her lap, and comes and gets us all the kids and especially the young women, young Bengali women in that building with my mom. We go and stay with her for weeks. I, I don't exactly remember now. And she basically uh, takes us away from there. Uh, what was She was afraid that this mob will come back again because they had not broken through the barrier and also attack the young women. Often happens with these riots is rape is a mode of disciplining minority women. So women all, carry the honor of the family. Exactly, in of our, the family, you know, so of that the is cultural the community. That's the, dis, if it's you dishonor, like you know, yes. if you dishonor the women of a community, you are in some ways dishonoring the whole community. You're destroying the whole community. Yeah. So all, I'm sorry, kind of, I went no, off no, no, on no. this. Your Who question. Cares? Do whatever you want. Let's talk about whatever you want. No, <laughs> is, uh, this, is, this, is this idea about boundaries and communities and poses for me, has persistently poses these questions, pose these question of, of belonging, of integrity of a community, but also not being caged into it as a prison house, you know? Yeah. Uh, and being able to cross these boundaries without provoking provocation or the other side of it, without colonizing the other, like in any relationship, right? How you develop intimacy across boundaries, yet maintain integrity of the self and of the other. So, and, and you do it through food and, 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 uh, and any aspects of culture. So yeah, that has been a peculiar, persistent problem uh, produced by others uh, in my in my life, uh, uh, and now in some ways replicated in the U.S. Uh, with a kind of a mobilization of, I would say, white 
Christian ethnicity uh, right now. Right now, That's yeah. A, right now in the U.S., that's one side of it. The pessimistic side of it. The optimistic side of it also says every place I have been in every of these instances, I have also found people capable of transcending those, fighting against that, taking risks to protect uh, the vulnerable in each of these instances, from the Sikh riots, anti-Sikh riots of 1984, anti-Muslim riots uh, of uh, 1974, anti-Bengali uh, 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 Odia riots in Odessa 1972, and now in, in the U.S. too. I've never seen that beautiful mobilization of an interracial coalition uh, to protect, basically, and deepen, in fact, democracy, including cultural democracy. I mean, what Trump, one good thing that came out of it is that we're all, there's kind of been an awakening in our deep down within us, you know, politically, where we're kind of united and we're more, there's more solidarity and we're more, we see the things more clearly now because of him. Absolutely. And some, I think Zizek, the, the philosopher, predicted that a bit. He, he, he said uh, that in some ways, Trump will do us good because the superficial presumption of a post-racial society uh, that we had with Obama and the Clintons, uh, that fantasy is gone. Uh, and for good. Destroyed. <laughs> and for good. And, and so in that sense, it's, it's a productive recognition um, of reality where you see 50% of whites uh, vote uh, for a guy who is monumentally incompetent uh, uh, and uh, the only thing that works for him is his mobilization of uh, whiteness and um, and you can see his administration is filled with people who I think are insecurely historically has been insecurely white uh, ethnic whites Irish and Italians and Germans himself is coming from a group uh, that was attacked for not being um, American enough. Uh, astonishing, uh, and, <laughs> and 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 Trump. That's his. Uh, that's his community. That's his family name. That gets turned into Trump, targeted for not being good enough Americans for being but foreign. You know, Germany. Yeah. Germans aren't visually different. You know, they are. I mean, with Indians and Pakistanis and Asians, they stand out. Germans, they can easily kind of jump to the other side. And you were talking about how German cooking was kind of looked down upon back in the day. I'm assuming because of World War II, because everyone hates the bad guys. So, you know, with Hitler and everything, yes. how did Germans kind of cross this to the good side? Whereas it's so much harder for different races, different cultures to kind of be accepted in American cuisine. Totally. I think, and the German case is, in fact, uh, precedes World War II. Okay. It goes back, but you're right, World War II is part of it. It goes back to the First World War. But remember, Germany was on the, uh, on the other side on both the World Wars. And in fact, there was a substantial German population everywhere, especially in the Midwest. Uh, the most important second language taught was German. American food was becoming uh, Teutonic in that sense, to use the terminology of, the, of, the, of say, Ben Franklin. He called the Germans um, as kind of a bit like Teutonic savages. And it was an open question whether they could be uh, uh, turned into American, in some ways, American Anglo subjects, basically. That's what first, he was first looking of all, at. First of all, what is American cuisine to begin with? Yeah, American cuisine. Pizza, is, cheeseburger? I mean, it depends which year you're talking about. Let's right? say now. Let's say now. Now, now some, some ways, totally, yes. Uh, 
uh, pizza, hamburgers, salads, pies, very uh, like Anglo traditions of various kinds of savory and and uh, sweet pies, apple pie as as American as apple pie. Think about that, um, wow. and of course, built uh, and think about it, uh, and that's also another uh, problem. Uh, often built on Native American ingredients like corn and and pumpkin and beans but what we that's the funny thing about american culture american food is we often uh, draw on native american ingredients but don't think of uh, them as dishes as if native americans had no culinary techniques before that right oh so uh, we think know? that they just eat corn and exactly ingredients you know there's turkey no there's no meal when we think of native americans we are thinking of ingredients but not about meal and so um so with the, going back to the german case was uh, this fascinating example of what people call the social construction of race right that that today people will be surprised that germans were not considered white people uh, and they became white just like the irish just like american jews by the way is happening right now we are in the middle of that people become white people by in partly in some ways uh, by becoming racists in fact um, <laughs> you know and so uh, so really? the irish irish there's a beautiful story of how the irish became white partly by in fact mobilizing against black people in american cities to which they were in fact culturally and economically closer and wow. so that happens with the german population that happens with the irish uh, urban irish population that happens with the italian population think about lynching at the end of the second uh, sorry at the end of the 19th century um, in uh, and in the early 20th century in new orleans some of the largest number of people lynched are in fact italians Mm, uh, but Italians become white by partly participating in anti-black racism. Uh, that happens with the Irish. Uh, by the way, that happens with the South Asian community in the U.S. today. So for a long time, people wrote books about food from a consumer's perspective, but you came along out of nowhere and you wrote a book on the perspective of the immigrants who make that food. Exactly. It's called The Ethnic Restauranter. How come you chose the word restauranter and not the word chef? Ah, <laughs> so uh, good question. Uh, uh, I was in fact wrestling with the title and the title is a bit of a red herring uh, because in fact, I use the title to say ethnic is probably the wrong word. Mm, uh, it's in, better it, than foreign. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, kind of, it's kind of fun because if people just look at the title, uh, they, they, they presume uh, what I'm going to say. But in the book, I kind of do a bit of a fake and say, well, ethnic is a term that was used from about the 1950s, dominant until the 1980s. In, in fact, until 2010, uh, uh, say a newspaper like the New York Times would sometimes use ethnic to represent basically non-elite uh, immigrant food, you know? And so basically cheap, inferior food. In some ways, exactly. For instance, I'll give, you, I'll, I'll give you an example. French would, though considered foreign, was never ethnic. No. Right? Never. Nordic. Does anyone think of Nordic when they think of ethnic food? I think expensive. <laughs> exactly, right? So, by the way, Italian was considered ethnic. If you go to even now, New Orleans, some of the older writers reference Italian food as if it is ethnic. 
Italian food exited that world of ethnicity, my argument is by climbing the class ladder, by becoming a dominant group, demographically dominant, we are talking about 16 million people in the US who consider themselves Italian-American and Italian move, Italians moved up as politicians, Giuliani, as actors, as film directors, uh, uh, and they become culturally a lot more visible and in some ways exit the ethnic category, while the rest of the people, Thai, Vietnamese, Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Mexican, are all still trapped under this weight of ethnic. And in talking about what I was interested in is what does this relationship look like when, from the point of view of immigrant small businesses who may or may not be chefs, uh, who may be doing the cooking or may be hiring other people who are doing the cooking. That is why I looked at the ethnic restaurateur as someone who is engaged in selling food. And my question for myself was, anywhere I look around now in an American city, most people who are doing the work and the small business of selling food are immigrants or foreign born. How historical is that pattern? If I look back at that pattern over time, do I see the same or is it that non-immigrants were doing most of the cooking? So that was my first question to myself. And so that made me dry, uh, look at the census data and census data we have go back to uh, 1850 at least, where you have birthplace and occupation. Before that, the census data did not ask you question about, so what's your occupation? You say you're a cook, say. And the sec other question was, so where were you born? Okay, so this birthplace and occupation was both asked in the 1850 census for the first time. And we right there have it from 1850 onwards that foreign born, dominated. If you're a saloon keeper, that was the terminology. Tavern keeper. There were no restaurants in that sense, or the very few restaurants. Most of the eating places were called saloons or, or, or taverns. Some of them were called cafes. If you're a baker, almost all the bakers in New York City on the eve of the Civil War are foreign-born. Hmm. They're German. German. Or, you know, all the butchers. Bagels. Yeah, and eventually bagels and bagels, bagels would become East European. Exactly, totally. And, and now bagels, it's American food. Now, and especially if you're in the Northeast, it's American. If yes. you still go to the South, American South, there's a sense that this is Jewish food. Oh. Uh, this is New York food. So there's a regionalization of it. So yes, that's the, uh, so that's the context in which I call the book The Ethnic Restaurateur, looking at people who had basically fed the American urban population uh, from when we have data uh, from the eve of the Civil War and continue to do so now. Just the, uh, the so-called ethnicity of the people are changing from there were Germans in the 1850s, there were Italians in the 1880s and 90s, there were Eastern European Jews in the 1920s, the deli, the delicatessen, think about that, think about the baker, the butcher, and they transform after 1965 because of the new immigration that's coming in. Most of the people who are running food businesses and feeding Americans are Latinx. They are uh, coming from Guatemala, El Salvador, Mexico, from Central America and from Mexico, or they are Asians. They are coming from China. 
They're coming from Bangladesh. They're coming from India. They're coming from Pakistan. They're coming from parts of the Middle East, including uh, Syria, Egypt right now, for instance, the largest, some of the largest number of street vendors in New York City are Egyptian. Uh, and one of the uh, common languages, uh, I'm, I'm on the board of the street vendor project in New York City. One of the, the ways the meetings are run, uh, the dominant languages are English, Arabic, uh, Bengali, Spanish, and, and Mandarin Chinese. You know, wow. the languages, the meetings, these are immigrant street vendors uh, and they are all their meetings a simultaneous translation in three to five languages that is now new york city but that has always been new york city that has always been an american city in fact as far uh, back as the data goes so that was the perspective i was trying to bring in to this conversation about in sociology, there's a lot of work what consumers get and what consumers want uh, from immigrant foods, from ethnic foods. It is about status. It's about different culture, but very little work on what immigrants are seeking out of this what, relationship. What, what do consumers want from immigrants when it comes to food? You know, I guess I, they want the experience of traveling, but not really traveling. I what guess is that? What I is guess that? number two is cheap Cheap excellent food. excellent um i guess what they also want is they want authentic food or what they consider it what is authentic food absolutely and, and i guess that puts them in a box i guess that puts the immigrant into a very small box and spicy and, and spicy, spicy so food, the idea yeah. american idea this is of course the nature of migration right yes. so spicy Flavors. cheap yeah spicy cheap exotic authentic uh, uh food and uh, and this experience of traveling without traveling but at the same time, they don't know what authentic food is. So I guess they're fitting the restaurants into their own stereotype taste buds. Absolutely. Racist taste buds, almost racist, I guess. I would say, Borderline. I would say ethnocentric. Ethnocentric, that's ethnocentric, right? So which word. could be race, could be, could be nationality, could be uh, ethnicity. Well, uh, if someone from China comes in and opens their own restaurant and they're really working hard and they're really, you know, putting their 24-7 into it and a consumer comes in, let's say a white American customer, he comes in, he may not be racist, but him not willing to pay for this man's work and effort, but he's willing to pay for, let's say, a French, French restaurant or Nordic, who's, who's doing the same amount of work and using the same ingredients isn't that is that racism or is that <laughs> yes. some kind of ignorance which i don't know really yeah yeah i would it's say very I would, subtle no, no no i would say i would say it is in some it is very clearly i call it a hierarchy of taste and it is structural and you could i would i would say you could call it structural racism that is in some ways it is not only driven by intention it's not like the intention of the white guy who's walking into say is he saying, uh, I'm here because I don't like the food. Now, he's there because he likes the food, he wants to eat it, or because it is cheap. But, he, uh, but if you ask him to pay a little extra money, like he's willing to pay for Italian food or French food or Nordic food, he refuses to do so. Or in fact, 
if you look if you follow Yelp discussion, uh, it is considered inauthentic. So if you are expensive Mexican food, uh, it is Europe. inauthentic. But if it is uh, expensive French food or Nor Nordic food, it is all totally authentic. And that is the like the in That's some racist. ways that is That's, the come on. That's <laughs> hierarchy of taste. Up. Uh, totally. Uh, and so and so that was for me that was kind of fun as because I couldn't I couldn't figure out what data to use until I stumbled into Zagat's because Zagat's is good because it provides uh, what is Zagat's it's a it's a survey of uh, that has uh, was born in 19 late 1970 1979 uh, it, it's uh, uh, that evaluates uh, um, restaurants American restaurants and one of the data point it provides is price for a meal with a glass of wine and tips uh, Zagat's is basically the Yelp of the 1980s, okay. 90s, okay. and and 2000s, until you get menu pages and Yelp and the rest of it, which is a lot more recent, almost after in 21st century. That is all 21st century. So these get surveys of restaurants, in New York City and other cities, uh, gives gives you that price. So I what I did was took those price for prices for all the restaurants, correlated them to ethnicity, nationality. And there was this hierarchy of taste where the top ones are things like, this is over a 30-year period. So I had data from 1980 when I did my work, uh, 1985 to uh, 2015. I had data because my book comes out in 2016. Uh, and uh, there's a hierarchy of taste where the top is French, predictably, continental, though that category is dying, American, especially if you call it new American then you can charge a lot of money. And then... It's kind of insulting because French is kind of relatively young when you look at China, who's been around for a long, long time, thousands of years, and the cooking belongs to a population of like over a billion people. And yet... And very sophisticated. It's still looked down upon. Absolutely. That is and because of even total Indian unfamiliarity. Food. Absolutely. And, and especially Chinese food, right? Yeah. So, I mean, China had connoisseurship foodies almost 500 years before, before French. But that was exactly the, the reason. While China is at the bottom of it, the cheapest, some of the cheapest food is Chinese and Indian and Mexican, while the most expensive on the other side is French. But I'll give you an a, a interesting exception in that and the top end of it. That's why I don't think it is only race. Uh, at the top end of it is Japanese food. Uh, is and it because that is, Japan is kind of moved up economically? Exactly. Economically and culturally. So I think it's a combination of race and class and soft power of a nation. Is Japan... Okay, but I, I see that you're saying people are willing to buy... Uh, willing to Very pay extra sushi. for Japan. Yes. Mm -hmm. However, do you think it's because there's a... What's the word? Exoticism. Yeah. Is, do you think that plays a factor when you're buying Japan, Japanese food? Yes. And that is a kind of a successful marketing of it. And but in it, some ways, Japanese food. Too. So Jap Japanese food, in some ways, you know what? It the analogy there, Japanese food is a lot more like French in that sense. And it has, by the way, emerged as an important part of a global discussion about, say, if you, if you look at the world's top 50 restaurants, anyone who counts it, there will be almost all European restaurants. Yes. Okay. Then there'll be about a half a dozen Japanese restaurants. And often the Japanese restaurants will be cooking Italian food uh, and, and French food. And uh, there'll, uh, there'll be no restaurants from anywhere in Africa, maybe one from South Africa who will be a white guy cooking French food. 
and there will be that's that's about a billion people no restaurant there'll be no restaurant from south asia which is more than a billion and a half people mm-hmm. okay and there will be no restaurant from china okay that's another billion people there you have half the world's population effectively excluded because these people who are making judgments about the best restaurant have a, either a very narrow definition of a restaurant and good food or in fact in fact are totally unfamiliar basically with the culinary logics of other parts of the world right you know? and so that and and i would i consider that a kind of a mix a matrix of race and class and power what about taste you know what if the food is just really really good can that surpass racism can that surpass class if the food is generally amazing good question historically in large i don't see patterns like that easily flipping what about street food you know exactly. india good pakistan question. people are willing good. to stand and exactly. in traffic and and in pollution and still eat <laughs> their favorite food so my sense is this historically at least in the western world good food came to be associated with cuisine cuisine came to be associated with restaurant food which is a particular kind of institution which is basically a bourgeois institution born in the modern world after the french revolution and that has dominated but we may be what you're saying is we may be in the cusp of breaking through that barrier where we begin to recognize good food that is not haute cuisine you know and street food are a terrific example and they are playing a very disruptive and a fascinating role right now saying you don't have to pay 150 dollars uh, uh to be to be able to say oh this is great food okay yes. you can do golgappa and chaat or chana masala on the street you know yeah. or sorba on the streets of south south any south asian city you know and say wow this is amazing this cost 10 rupees okay this cost 15 rupees this cost 25 rupees so there is i think there there is a kind of a cachet there a cultural cachet yeah. of of what street of the what the street is and a street is a much more democratic space my argument is that in fact in the western world atlantic world north america and europe when we drove food off the streets which we did uh, uh basically through the 19th and especially the 20th century good food came to be identified as indoors food food in cafeterias food in restaurants food at home okay and and the street became an illegitimate space of good taste thankfully we have tried desperately and we are still trying in places like bangkok and shanghai to drive away street food right now because those are basically city governments trying to model themselves after western cities i think to disastrous consequences where in africa in african cities in south asian cities in southeast asian cities the best food is either home cooking or in fact street food in fact restaurant food is mostly derivative and not that interesting you know yes. uh, so that's a new it's a new language of good taste that is just emerging and if it succeeds we might end up with your with your at a place where if the food is good by some definition that is not haute cuisine 
uh, then it becomes much more interesting than just say a French or a Nordic Nordic uh, haute cuisine institution. You're beginning to see a bit of that uh, with say World's Top 50 has one street vendor from Bangkok. You know, people are beginning to play a bit with it, uh, yeah. but I think it's early stages of it. We are not there in terms of democratization. And I personally also think sometimes we also have a reversal, not just everything develops, not in one direction, that we're going to have opening up democratization of taste. So a fantastic Golgappa or a fantastic chart will stand at the same level as Rene Retsepe's cooking, okay? Or David Chang's uh, recipe or How menu. does David Chang get away with... Yes. How so does he get away with this? Very interesting Because thing. he's Korean. Exactly. Is it because of, he went to... French school? Part, partly. He's in that network. I see him as a very interesting figure. He's both part of the world of domination of taste, certain kind of taste. He went to culinary school. French culinary school. French. And then, and, and that's his innovation. That's his credibility? Where he that's his credibility. Like, this is why he, but, people are going to hear him out? But he also went to Japan, various cities, just when Japan was emerging as a new space of this kind of a culture. So think about it a little like, uh, I would say, think about it a little like painting. Okay. Okay. So in a sense, what we call art in the Western gallery sense is a very Western notion of figurative art. And, and in some ways, I'm, I'm making a very quick uh, analogy here. Uh, realism uh, until the end of the um, uh, 19th century, the sense that which we get out of the Renaissance, which is the if, if a representation is very close to reality, as close to reality as possible, it is the best art in the world, some definition of good art. That begins to disintegrate at the end of the 19th century with one of the, one of the uh, domains in which it disintegrates schools is Impressionism. Okay. okay. And Impressionism, if you look at it, Impressionism, the realism, uh, the figurative art is beginning to vanish into a kind of a painting uh, of landscapes, painting of, if you look at those paintings of Impressionists, they look a lot like watercolor on silk. Mm -hmm. There's a strong Japanese aesthetic influence in that. Oh, I see what you're Japanese saying. Japanese, okay? I see what you're so, saying. Often, even in the Western dominant mode, there will be an exotic other they will pull in, okay? With Impressionism is Japanese art. So with Pablo Picasso, think about it, it was African masks. African masks are what, in fact, instigated him, his imagination to fracture that plane of kind of uh, uh, representational art, right? Right. With all those facets you see in his artwork. Yeah. Right, he borrows that strongly influenced by masks, African masks. So, in high cultural uh, production in the Western world, David Chang is masks. Is is the David's, African masks to exactly, Picasso? What is oh. exactly? So, what what African masks is to Picasso? Okay, in in some ways, or what Japanese watercolors are to Impressionism. I mean, I I see it also as kind of a opening. Uh -oh. <laughs> yes, be, uh, disruptive, know. you know, disruptive. Know. Because when I first went to his restaurant, you know what was kind of fun? He had no silverware. He has become less aggressive in that domain now. It, they have tamed him very well now. 
he never uh, provided silverware and never provided stemware. Um, so he would pour his wines into these little like uh, almost like chai glasses from South Asia, the thick, ugly glasses, but durable ones. Those, those yeah. gray ones, those gray <laughs> yes, metal glasses? Exactly, really? Exactly. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Your child always tastes better in those glasses. Exactly. So he would serve uh, wine in those uh, and he would uh, not provide silverware. Silverware, so he would just provide chopsticks. So if you had to use silverware, you had to ask for it. So he used to play these mind games with his audience. That's amazing. Um, no white tablecloth, no back, no chairs, no opulent chairs. Basically, what he did was he disrupted the notion of a haute French cuisine restaurant. Totally disrupted it. Okay. And yet could charge the prices he he uh, uh, he had to to kind of basically make his business run. But it sounds like it's an upper class restaurant with like a gimmick, which isn't really the same thing as like, hey, I'm doing my own thing. It's like Crazy Rich Asians, the movie. It, <laughs> yes. it makes it sound like it's opening a lot of doors, but it's also a gimmick itself that, hey, this is an all Asian cast. Look at, that's, you, know, you, that's, get, you get this factor. That, that's one way to think it. about it. Okay, that's that's me. I'm pessimistic. <laughs> yes. You're obviously optimistic. <laughs> but on the other side, think about it, uh, uh, which makes the food so much more interesting. That it we does. have someone it like does. David Chang. It's an you experience. Know, you know, uh, um, uh, kind of playing with that kind of a food um, and, and not just kind of boring uh, haute cuisine uh, repertoire. Or think about, I mean, I would say the analogy, a more powerful analogy. And I don't think it has gotten there with food yet. Think about music, okay. right? Think about what hip hop did to Western music, right? So in some ways it comes out of the periphery in that sense, unlike David Chang, it in fact comes out of the Bronx, say one example, one source, right? From the poor Caribbean communities, black communities, brown communities, uh, and in some ways transforms that into cultural capital. And of course makes a lot of white people rich selling black music um, and makes some black people rich selling black music. And, and, and all that is true. And on the other hand, it does in fact, totally transforms the aesthetics of what is good to listen to. Okay. And in some ways, so I sometimes think you are absolutely right in pointing to the conservative aspects of just promoting a, some uh, brown and black people into a system and not changing the system. That happens. But I don't think anytime you admit enough black and brown people into a system, the system is going to stay fully intact, including the aesthetic system. In this case, think about music. In, in this case, think about what jazz did to, in some ways, Western classical music, right? Think about what soul, R&B did to rock and roll, right? If you compare music to food and hip-hop to to yeah. ethnic food, I guess. Yes, exactly. Hip-hop is a lot more... It took a long time for hip-hop Absolutely. to get where it is now. So you're basically Absolutely. saying food will eventually get there, but it's going to take a long, long time to get there. And that's an interesting question. Why is it that food is behind music? Yes. That music or the other way around. Why is that music was ahead? All, music is almost 50 years ahead. The same discussions we are having in food today. Who does it belong to? White food, black food, brown food, ethnic food. We had that discussion on music in the 1950s, 1960s, and the 1970s. We are almost 50 years late to that discussion with food. 
And I wonder what that is about. Is it because the food is what we incorporate inside our body that in fact, people tend to be a lot more conservative about taking something literally into the body rather than metaphorically into the body through the year. You know, Uh music, music can be still far from it. You, You listen to it and you absorb it. And of course, you also embody it in dancing, which is a good example of it. A lot of people listen to music for some of that bodily movement and motion and emotion. Food, on the other hand, I think it has taken so much longer to even reach that. We are not even at that moment of disruption. Yeah. Nowhere like what hip hop is to Western music, you know, uh, uh, Western pop music. We are nowhere there. We are almost 20 years behind even now 20 years away from it i mean that for me is an interesting question uh, as to why food is so slow and conservative a domain of cultural expression compared to music is it because all these people all these ethnic restaurants are stuck in a box and they can't really do much they don't really have a voice because you're saying that Americans don't think the food is authentic if it's expensive. So if it's cheap, then it's authentic to them. And if it's cheap then, and they're only willing to pay less or a certain limit, that makes the ethnic entrepreneur, uh, the immigrant, stuck and not willing to kind of do new things, not kind of expand their restaurant. It's almost like saying the more the box he's stuck in, the, the smaller the box, the more money, the more customers will come. Yes, I think it's a twofold thing. So one is, I think one is the, uh, um, you're absolutely right. Uh, part of it is the, is the that's why the ethnic restaurateur uh, is the project takes a lot of money, a lot of effort, and it's very difficult to make money out of a small business like that. Yes. Okay. Um, and uh, so, so kind of one of the aspect is a, about a highly competitive business. There's no way to create a profitable bottleneck in it, especially under the burden of expectation that you cannot charge $35 for a dish. You will have to charge about five, six, maybe $7, uh, maybe $9.99 at a maximum to be able to uh, pull it off. Yes. So one, one is that. The second, I think, think about it, when you're selling music, you can replicate it endlessly once you have made the music. Right. In some ways, the uh, the cost of it is in the cost of the first unit. After that, basically, the cost of transmission is almost for free. Okay, you can't do that with food yet. Okay, no. so every time you have to build that unit, you have to produce that unit, and it has all the constraints of friction, of social relationship, and, and low profit margins, and basically massification of it. Basically, with music, you make a lot of money by selling one thing repeatedly. Right. In food, you do that, but you do that with fast food, with corporate chains. Right. That's, why, that's why big money gets into kind of a million dollar McDonald's because, or uh, uh, sauces in grocery stores. That's why every major uh, uh, entrepreneur in food eventually gets into the business of selling uh, uh, sauces and soups and and canned and jarred things and spices and or even David Chang. Think about the example. David Chang makes more money out of Fuku than all his restaurants put together, which sells basically basically, uh, 
uh, chicken sandwich. You know, he sells three or five things in there, able to replicate it. And in fact, exactly like McDonald's. Okay. okay. So that is where you make the real money is by basically scaling it up. Okay. Most immigrant restaurateurs are trapped in a very competitive field. Okay. And they cannot easily replicate what they're doing or scale up. Uh, most of the restaurateurs I talk to uh, for my book sell what? About 100 meals a day, maybe 200 meals a day. How much money can you make about out of 200 meals a day? You know, you can make some money if you charge three hundred dollars. If okay? your rent is low, but in if New your York, rent is low, that's right? Not happening. So, in fact, for even even for upscale restaurants in New York, often the restaurant itself is not that much of a money maker. What the money maker uh, is, is the brand. So, so you'll have a great chef who will run a restaurant. It'll be a loss leader. So he'll be not making that much money, but he'll be making his brand. And then he'll sell the sauce on the side and then the cookbook on the side, which is where he's going to make the money. And he's going to make consulting gigs on the side. So the real money is in the sauce. It's in the hype. hype. Which is like what runs capitalism at the moment. Or always has been. I would say it is celebrity capitalism. You have to put your finger, celebrity capitalism. That's it. So that's what works. You're going in for that. Immigrant restauranters putting in $10,000, $100,000 are not easily, will not easily become celebrity capitalists. So basically, again, think about food in that sense. Food is a lot like music. But with music, you have, I guess with every song, you have a message. With food... You don't really have a message and there's more effort in the consumer's part to make an effort to kind of understand what this person's eating and whatnot. Hip hop, it's kind of right in your face. This is, this is the situation we live in. I would say food like material, any material object is much more friction constrained by friction, you know, both social friction and material friction. They just want their food and then get out. Exactly. With music, it's like there's a music video, there's the artists and the interviews. It's really telling you, you know, Wu-Tang Clan or Jay-Z, exactly. they're trying to tell you something. Whereas, I guess, the owner of the restaurant has very little voice. in and, 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 and the capacity to uh, replicate it out in the social world, you know? Yes. But what is similar is this. The similar is this. Even in music, most people don't make a good living in music. There are right. millions of musicians out there. Okay. Yes. In fact, the most, the standard way of having a good job as a musician is be- become a music teacher. Okay. And in fact, some will become celebrities. Okay. Who will totally bust through. We, of course, only see the celebrity. We, that's what is the tip of the iceberg. You know, yeah. it is 0.001%. Okay. The rest of the people are struggling underneath it. Some are making a good living by being a teacher, school teacher if possible, etc. But at the bottom of it is massive underemployment. Food is very similar like that. You will have some David Changs, you will have some Rene Redzepis at the top, but that's just, just the tip of the iceberg. Most people are working, if they're lucky, for 15 bucks an hour. If not lucky, for 5 bucks an hour, maybe plus tips. Do you think that if a white person open if if a if if i walk into a chinese restaurant and there's a white staff would that make me 
feel less would that make <laughs> me you know question. you know would i what would i Good be okay question. with paying more would i in my pre you know i'm i'm sure i have my own biases but yeah i'm yeah. thinking that i would be like okay this must be a fancy chinese place i'm okay to pay this much is that how it works too? Like there is. It's very good. Like there was that example, like right, Lucky Lee's in the village, um, uh, or I think it was, uh, yeah, in Manhattan, where it was they advertised themselves as clean Chinese food, which Oof. was the, they were trying to gesture, they were trying to gesture towards non-Chinese, uh, and uh, uh, so that that's an interesting question. That's what I mean by I don't think it is totally individual intention. You know, what you or I intend and feel. That's what I mean by structural. And that's, I think, what people mean when they say it is more structural racism or hierarchy rather than individual intention. It's when people are going into these places to eat, they don't have individual malified bad intentions, right? What it is, is they have a sense that I will pay, it's okay to pay $35 for a rack of lamb in a French restaurant. But if I pay more than 12 bucks, for a dish cooked in a Chinese restaurant, that's too much. There's this idea about value and an object, which in what you're pointing to is a form of structural racism. It but is. I don't think it is It is not individual intentionality driven. Totally. It's not on purpose, but yes, exactly. it's not on purpose, but it's there. Yeah. And you don't even know it until someone it, tells you. Yeah. And you're it's, like, it's oh like, yeah, I do that. Yeah, exactly. Or think about think about uh, what we think is beautiful, right? Uh, or what we think is sexy. Like for instance, right. I'm, I tell my students. I tell my students. I would say I know we have arrived when you guys think Indian accent is really sexy, okay? Like French or like Italian, you guys that's think. True. You know, that's true. so that's that that aesthetic quality of evaluation that is in fact deeply embedded racial structure of it. Okay, but we don't recognize it. Even I, I said, "Oh wow, French accent, that's beautiful." Yeah, right. Here. Italian accent that has become beautiful. That Italian used culture, to be a, not just the accent, but exactly. the whole whole European, baggage, le, whole baggage, France, exactly, Vista. exactly. Yeah, or Milan, like or from Milan, right? Yeah. The fashion, Italian fashion, right? Yeah. And I think one of the reasons Italian food became that fashionable is because Italian fashion became that fashionable. Mm, you know? Which sucks because you know uh, South Asia has amazing culture in fashion, music, food, and just so and, may, much. and here's the here's the side of it. Maybe some of that will happen. Like as people start using like what used to be those like chunnies and the like think about South Asian textiles. South Asian textiles have dominated the world for at least two millennia. Okay. Everybody in the world wanted to import. South Asian textiles, yeah. okay? And they were destroyed basically by British imperialism and protection of the British market, protection of the American market. They are just beginning to reemerge because even now, you go anywhere in South Asia, you look at the local textiles, it is mind-blowingly complicated, interesting, you know, an aesthetic input, but we do not yet fully have the capacity to recognize. Like India, when I go to, when yeah. I go to Odessa, back, Okay, back to my state. Right. I go to a store, okay, to buy a sari, say, with, say, with my friends, okay? A standard store, okay? There are 10,000 different styles of saris that my mother knows all the details of, the weave, okay, the coloring of it, 
the texture, you know, the feel for it, okay? And, and the variety of it, we just don't put that in the same place as, say, Western art. That's not, that's in some ways seen as everyday, not that valuable. Maybe we are entering a phase when those things will change, are changing in a more, in a more democratic way than we have seen so far, even or, more democratic than the African masks for Pablo Picasso or Chinese or, or Japanese watercolors for impressionism. It sounds like we are the ones who don't see the value within ourselves. And for that's, some that's, reason, we take European fashion and we put it higher than South Asian fashion. Many argue that's a form of like, like a mental a, colonialism. Yeah, mental colonialism. No, mental colonialism, right? I completely understand, and, yeah. And, and, and that we, I didn't realize it until I came here, lived in the U.S. for tw- more than 20 years, went back and I said, wow, why did I miss the beauty? My, my mom has, say, 50 saris, you know, and each of them is selected with kind of care. And yeah. understanding of its quality, you know, that I have zero knowledge about. You know? I mean, they or, don't even, my, my mom doesn't buy saris from here, from Canada. Absolutely. They want it because it sucks and they want it yes. from there and they know exactly when they see something that, that's made poorly. Absolutely. Or, or I'll give you an analogy. My two grandmothers who live in a, lived in a small town, both lived up to 100 years old in a small town in Odessa, again, going back to that state called Balasore, okay? They would know all the local greens, vegetables around the pond. Both of them had ponds, okay? Around the pond, they could identify all the edible greens that I don't even know the names of, okay? Some of them they'll recognize in the local markets, okay? Most of them today, by my generation and my son's generation, it's, that knowledge is totally lost, invisible and it may be lumped into one category called spinach everything is a spinach right and that capacity to make fine distinctions uh, about say greens or about uh, uh, saris is a form of knowledge that was has been destroyed by western modernity in valuing some things and not valuing other things and we have played our role in that process of evaluation yes. where in a sense where a, 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 a Levi Strauss jeans, a branded Levi Strauss jeans uh, or a Gucci uh, kind of an attire or a Gucci handbag uh, has more value than say all the saris I've seen in my life, all the, all the greens that were growing around my, both my grandmother's ponds. And I, in fact, do not know how to make distinctions between those. I do not have that knowledge. I do not have the capacity to make fine distinction them. In that sense, that's the pessimistic part of me, is that so much of that knowledge we have destroyed, it'll be difficult to come back. Uh, yes, 100%. Uh, uh, and find that knowledge again. Both my grandmothers are dead, and there's no way I'm getting that knowledge back without extraordinary effort. It's very sad. Has structural racism affected you? You're in the food industry. You teach, you write books, you have people listen to your voice. Uh, you have an accent. You are visually a minority. Has that, has your career kind of slowed down because of that or held back? I'll give you two examples of it. 
Uh, one is I never wanted to write about Indian food and ethnic food. Uh, but I got increasingly trapped in that world because people uh, had these expectations that, of course, I wouldn't know. I don't want to talk about French food or Italian food, uh, but uh, I can talk about Indian food. Then I can talk about all kinds of brown food. I probably know as much about Italian food now as I know about Indian food. I don't know probably 99.99% of Indian food, partly because I have not seen most of Indian yeah, most of the time, how most people eat, right? But that's kind of the, the correlationship between what I look like and what I work on is a series of expectation that uh, Floyd Cardos used to say. He became best informed, one of the best French and new American chefs, but always the expectation from him was, could he do Indian food? You know, so it is both, I think, a domain of opportunity and a prison house. Uh, that if I am, I know of people, I know of white people who go and travel a few times in India and write a book on Indian food. Okay. I haven't dared to write a book on Indian food. I have lived 30 years, half of my life in some ways, less than 30 years, half of my life in India, half of my life in the US. I have not dared to write a book on American food yet, in some ways, fully American food. Right. I have been here for almost 30 years. Okay. So that is, in some ways, the expectation, um, what sociologists call field characteristics, are different for someone like me. It has given me more opportunities to talk about brown food and less opportunities to talk about white food. Okay. It feels like uh, you belong nowhere. <laughs> it feels like... You I mean, really, that sometimes have, can be a fun. It could be fun. You're right. You see things from an outsider's and, perspective. And I'm kind of that funny liminal figure, that peculiar stranger, right? Where, who you confess to because you're not fully in there. You're not fully out there. And coming back, that was our first point, remember, about my anxiety about belonging. Right. Because the violence that might be associated with it it feels for me emotionally, intellectually, the right place to be is beyond the margin. Safe. Not fully Indian, not fully American. We're, or so it's both. a safe spot for you. It's a comfortable, it's, safe spot for you where you're not really expected. I mean, I don't know. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. Responsible it's in some ways. Responsible, it's a, yeah. That's the right it's, word. Yeah, it's a peculiar space of irresponsibility or non-responsibility. If you're less charitable towards me, you will say, well, that's a kind of a site of non-responsibility. I'm not fully responsible for what's Indian. I'm not fully responsible for what's American. But I like that space. I, it's, it's, it's a perfect fit for me. The, the consequence of my experience about belonging and the, and the violence that is associated with, with it um, provides me a space in which I'm always distancing myself a little from everything, be it Indian or be it American. Even now, I still have an Indian passport. I'm an Indian citizen, but I've now lived in the U.S. for the last almost 30 years. So from all this, from overall, it sounds like the only way an immigrant can change your perspective on food, on their food, is if the country that they come from has less poor people in it yes basically. or is or is sending less poor people 
it happened Same. to Italians, you know, it, yeah. as long as Italy was sending poor people, you know, in some ways, no one respected Italian culture. You know, so they stopped. As, it so happened with Japanese food, you know, yes. I mean, and, you know, it happened with Japanese food where, in fact, if you look at Americans talking about Japanese food on the West Coast uh, uh, at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, uh, um, it was full of disdain. Uh, and that totally changed once poor Japanese stopped coming to the U.S., and only uh, the people we met were managers uh, of Toyota uh, and, and, uh, and Nippon Airlines and expensive hotels. Uh, and the, by the way, that's how East Coast Japanese food, sushi, was uh, a business district food. But Americans have accepted Germans as one of their own. With Japanese people, there is still Good other question. There, you know, Good so question. That is, they're just kind of like accepted, kind of like you're okay, you're allowed to come to this party but you're not going to date my daughter kind of thing. And that's, that's what you're pointing to is, is so there's the what, race thing I'm saying. That well, comes if, you're a, if you're a visually distinctive race, can you break through that whiteness barrier that the Germans could, the Irish could, didn't do it. the Italians could, African-American, that's an excellent example. African-Americans and have been in America people for a long argue, time longer than the rest of us, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and that's an excellent example where race, visible race matters more than class sometimes. Sometimes, all the time, I think. I <laughs> that's good. We're getting there, but I mean, yes. I think we're aware of the problem now and that's probably step one. And now we've got like another 100 steps to go. Yes. You'll be, you'll be seeing the outcomes of this. I'll be dead long before that. My children will be seeing it when I get <laughs> yes. children, I think, or my grandchildren. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, Good. They'll look at this uh, interview and they'll be like, you know, this was the time. Oh, man, this was in the middle of all that. Yeah. Uprising. uprising. I mean, that's, that's, a beautiful, that's a beautiful thing about uh, the uprising. We are in the middle of a real revolution. And are a we? It revolution. sounds like history just repeats itself and we're kind of just... Well, it is, but it doesn't you, you exactly. Went, you grew yeah. up in 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 that time of you know India, and yeah. now you're kind of just seeing it again. And you that have is. Modi in India now, that which is scary. Is, it's it's just scary. repetitive. I don't it know how you're so optimistic, scary. but I guess you have to be delusional. There's part of me has to be uh, delusional. I, don't know. I think you, you know, know better. Optimism of will, almost right, in a pessimism of kind of uh, the analysis. My analysis is repeatedly pointing to. What are you saying? History repeating itself, oppression, yeah. exclusion, racism, class uh, oppression, one that, side of it. That's one of the things I didn't like about Taste the Nation was that mm. it never talks about how America was def is defined by exclusion. Yes. There's like this idea that the, the, the way she portrays it is like America's this party to be at. And if you're accepted, exactly. which I didn't really like. And I wanted her to talk about Too simplistic. how... Yeah, too simplistic and just too because, easily optimistic. Exactly. Too easily optimistic. I agree. Just, just because Americans like tacos does not mean they won't vote for Trump and build a wall. Absolutely. They and we have, seen, the right? we have seen and... the Chinese exclude the people. Yeah. We did with the Chinese Easily. Exclusion Act. You know, we you did know? with the Chinese Exclusion um, Act America very clearly. America shouldn't. Exactly. And everybody else yeah. after that. Yes. I don't know. It was. That's the only. But I think she's. she just kind of was figuring things out and I'm sure season two, she'll be more outspoken, but yeah. it's also the positioning, right? You're a South Asian woman, yes. a celebrity. Uh, and so there's some things you can't see and some things you cannot see because yeah. people treat you differently than, than uh, the South Asian cab driver. 
That's true. At the end of the day, everyone is gonna have a complaint no matter what. You can't really make anyone yes. happy, <laughs> yes. you know. And yes, exactly. But I'm rooting for her. That's good. That's good. I'm I'm gonna watch the rest of it. And it kind of I'm I'm uh, surprised, in fact, how positive the review was by Soiho uh, in uh, the San Francisco Chronicle. You know, for so, by Soleho. Uh, and uh, I don't know who she is. I she's the she is. restaurant critic of the San she's Francisco. She's tough. She's very tough, and 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 she was very optimistic about positive about her review. It came out about two, maybe a little about a month ago now. Okay. And uh, so I was like a bit surprised by it uh, because part of me is skeptical about how 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 much good you can do as a celebrity. Okay. You know, and so that's the structural problem of it. Um, I'm, I was now happy with aspects of it. Yeah, now I'm pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> that part of it, I am pessimistic. Welcome to the club. <laughs> yes. That's good. 